You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to hear from you. We put ourselves under your word and the authority of your word, and we want to learn. We want our hearts to be changed. So would you change our hearts? Help us to see and savor your son, Jesus. As we study your living and active word, would you please apply it to our hearts into our lives, and would you, by your Holy Spirit, discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Speak to us that we might further live by faith in this pilgrimage from this world to the world to come. May you increase and may I decrease. Amen. Good evening. I am very honored to be with you guys this summer. Um, to teach tonight. Thank you for inviting uh, me to do that. It's been a delight to reconnect with a lot of you and to meet many of you for the first time. And like you said, I would love, my wife and I would love to, to meet you if we haven't met you already this summer. We are incredibly thankful to be your co-laborers in our gospel work in North Africa. Where are you from? So I get this question a lot. Uh, in my city, people are confused at my white skin, uh, at my dashing good looks, at my robust mustache, uh, my oddball Arabic. Uh, when I am asked, where are you from? I usually ask in return, where do you think I'm from? Nine times out of 10, they say Syria. Uh, apparently, I look like that stand-up world leader, Bash- Bashar al-Assad, so uh, I-, I get that almost every time. <clears throat> but in general, I like the question, where are you from? It's an easy question for me. Uh, I was born and raised in the same city until I was 18 and went off to college. Um, I only lived in two houses within a couple miles of each other. Uh, so if somebody asks me, where are you from, I can say with confidence, I'm from New Mexico. I am New Mexican. But are you aware that some people, for some people, this is an anxiety-inducing question? Some people hate that question because they don't feel like they have a good answer. Um, Maybe you have heard of a TCK. That stands for Third Culture Kid, and it is the politically correct way to now describe a child who has spent a significant part of their developmental years in a country other than that of their parents. 
So third culture kid. The first culture is that of their parents. The second is the country in which they reside. And then the third is some combination of those two. My children would be considered TCKs. So if you talk to an adult whose background was a TCK, likely they're not going to like the question, where are you from? Why? Because that question is usually asked in the context of, I don't understand this person that's in front of me. Where are you from? So imagine my children growing up in Africa, in our home, and then coming to the States for university. They're going to be interacting with Americans who have thousands of shared cultural reference points, and which my children are not going to have. My children will look, at, look like them, talk like them, but will likely act and respond very differently than them. Just last month, I was talking with a friend, and I said, that's not a knife, this is a knife. Some of you, like, are too young to know that, but <laughs> in general, Americans know that, right? And so we laughed. My kids are going to have those types of things said to them, and they will not laugh, and then they're going to be asked, where are you from again? So tonight, we're going to be exploring this question, where are you from? On to Hebrews. Uh, before we get to our passage, let's just talk about Hebrews. This is written to first century Christians within about 50 years of Christ's death and resurrection. And it appears that the author of Hebrews knew those people that he was writing to. He's concerned for them, and he's concerned that they're going to fall away. The people he's writing to appear to be a group of Jewish background Christians. They're tempted to leave Christ and return to their former way of life. The author discourages them of this in two main ways, in two main ways throughout the letter. One, he warns them of the dangers of forsaking Christ. And two, he raises their eyes to the all-supremacy of Christ. Christ is worthy of all worship. Christ is God. He is the better high priest. You've had high priests before that, you know, are at the temple and they're your mediator. He is the better high priest. He is the all-sufficient sacrifice. He brings in a better covenant than the old. Well, our text tonight falls near the end of the letter of Hebrews. The author has warned them over and over about forsaking Christ. He's pointed them over and over to Christ, and now he wants to tell them how they should respond to what he has just taught them. They should respond in faith. So we're in chapter 11. Uh, this is that famous faith chapter. If you've read through Hebrews or if you've been around Christianity for a while, you've heard by faith, by faith, by faith, right? That's this chapter, listing many examples of how believers throughout history have responded rightly to God. Verse 1, the writer defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then he goes on to give many examples of people whom we should consider when thinking how to respond in faith to the truths of Scripture. He lists Abel, Cain and Abel, right? Right after Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, their kids. He lists Abel, Enoch, a dude after Abel, and Noah, who all respond in faith to God's command. Then in chapter 11, verse 8, the author brings up Abraham, and he's who we're going to be talking about tonight. Abraham was called by God to go to a place that he didn't know, Genesis chapter 12 calls him to go to a place he didn't know in order to receive some land as an everlasting possession. Abraham didn't know where he was going when he set out. And though he did arrive in the land of promise, interestingly, 
he lived in tents with his children, as opposed to Lot, his nephew, who was traveling with him, who settled in cities. Abraham seems to hardly treat it like an everlasting, permanent possession. God says, go out to this everlasting, permanent land. It's going to be yours. He gets there, and he starts dwelling in tents, unlike his nephew Lot. Not only that, it was still filled with lots of other people. Abraham was also promised by God in Genesis 12 that he would be a great nation, and through him every nation on the earth would be blessed. And as you know, he became a very old man before God finally granted him and Sarah the ability to conceive. So, we get to our text, verse 13. We're going to talk about the identity of a pilgrim first. Verse 13. These all, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Author has just listed Abel, Enoch, Noah, and now he's talking about Abraham. But the these here, these all died in faith, is referring to Abraham and his children in verses 8 through 12, not to Abel, Enoch, and Noah. I'm going to circle back to the first part of verse 13 in a minute, but now let's look at how these Old Testament saints viewed themselves, that is, Abraham and his children. What was their identity? So it says in verse 13, they acknowledged that they were strangers, exiles, or in other versions, sojourners, pilgrims on the earth. Exile, someone who is not able to go to his own country. Sojourner, someone who is temporarily somewhere on their way to somewhere else. So when the Hebrews, these likely former Jews, hear this, they're thinking through their Bible history. When would Abraham have acknowledged that he was a sojourner? Well, when he was living in the land promised to him. Guys, this is, this is crazy. I, as, as I studied this, it was such a revelation to me. He was living in the land promised to him. His wife dies at 127 years old, and he goes to the inhabitants of the land. This is in Genesis 23, and he says, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me a place to bury my wife. This land was promised by the God of the universe to Abraham, and yet he kept the identity of a pilgrim. Abraham was kind of a big deal. He had people coming to him at this point in his life wanting to make treaties with him because of his wealth, his power, and also people recognizing that God was with him. But instead of fighting for what was promised to him, the author of Hebrews points us to the fact that Abraham viewed himself as a stranger and an exile on the earth. Remember, the author of Hebrews is in the middle of explaining how these first century Christians are to live by faith and he points out how Abraham considered himself a sojourner. It's not just Abraham, though. Jacob, Abraham's grandson, who also spent most of his life living in the land promised to him, tells Pharaoh at the end of his life that he's been sojourning for 130 years, just like his fathers, Isaac and Abraham. This is Genesis 47. Why did these men who had been living in the land promised to them that was to be theirs for eternity, consider themselves sojourners. <clears throat> it's 
think again about the Hebrews to whom this letter was written. When they heard this sentence about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob acknowledging that they were pilgrims on earth, maybe, just maybe, their thoughts also turned to a later figure in Jewish history, David. So David was a great king in Jewish history who lived in the promised land after it was conquered. His son Solomon was going to build a temple for God, the place where God's presence was to rest. If anyone was experiencing fulfillment of God's promises, it was David. But we see in 1 Chronicles 29 that David, in a prayer before his death, says to God, We are strangers before you and sojourners as all of our fathers were. Our days on earth are like a shadow. David, living in the promised land, considered his life and his forefathers' lives a sojourn, a temporary stay en route to a different place, a pilgrimage. So we are exhorted here in in verse 13 to consider that acknowledging our identity as strangers and exiles on the earth is a proper way to view ourselves if we want to live by faith, avoiding apostasy and treasuring Christ. This isn't just an Old Testament idea, though. It's further developed in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter says in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 11, listen to this. I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He appeals to how they view themselves, their identity. In light of being a sojourner, in light of being an exile who is only here for a moment, don't indulge in the petty passions of the flesh, Peter says. What would it mean in your life for you to grow in this identity? There are many things to be said of the different ways that we can view ourselves, right? I can have an identity of, I am a child of God, and I can grow in that identity. I can grow in my identity as part of the bride of Christ. I can grow in my identity as being in union with Christ. But imagine you grew in this specific area, this metaphor of how we are to relate to the present world and the world to come. What things would change if you believed that your life was just a shadow and your real life was ahead of you? How would you act differently? How would you treat that flirtatious relationship at the coffee shop or at work? How would you spend your money? We'll consider, we will continue to consider this in the next point, the actions of a pilgrim. Let's look at verse, uh, verses 14 and 15. Sorry, let's start in 13, the actions of a pilgrim. Again, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. In verse 14, the author says, You know that people who talk this way, saying they're strangers and exiles on the earth, These people are making it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Why would Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob be seeking a homeland? Abraham had moved there. Isaac and Jacob lived there. What other homeland were they seeking? 
Maybe they were seeking Abraham's homeland of Ur. No, verse 15 says that if they had been thinking of their homeland, they could have returned. Nothing was stopping them from returning to Ur. No, that must not have been the homeland they were seeking. But we find the answer in the next verse, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They were not seeking Abraham's homeland in Ur. They were seeking a homeland in heaven. The author of Hebrews is saying that we are to learn from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are to take on this identity of sojourner, temporary stayer, and we are to seek our homeland in heaven. They lived in the land flowing with milk and honey, but we are told that they were seeking another heavenly homeland. Do you hear this, Americans? They lived in the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land. And yet, when the author of Hebrews describes these patriarchs, he says they were seeking another homeland. This is not out of your reach. I know that this is a land of comfort, and it can be very difficult to get your eyes off of the comforts around you and actually seek another homeland, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, living in the promised land, that land of milk and honey, were able to do this, and you can too. Let's again imagine these readers of this letter in the first century. Some of them have already lived this out. If you go back one chapter... If you can, turn back to chapter 10, verse 32. He's going to describe when they lived this out. He says, But recall the former days after you were enlightened, after you became a believer. Think about those. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, so if they become Christians and they are publicly being mocked, exposed to reproach, mocked, publicly exposed to affliction, beaten, and sometimes they're just being partners with those who, who are so treated. For, why did this happen? For you had compassion on those in prison. So apparently, Christians are being taken to prison and other Christians are going to prison, visiting them, and are getting mocked and beaten. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They at one time knew that they had a better possession and an abiding one in heaven. But they're reminded here in our text again, seek the heavenly homeland. If your eyes are set on the promised homeland in heaven, you will joyfully accept the plundering of your property. You will joyfully bear reproach and affliction for the sake of Christ because you will be able to see that promise from afar and have confidence that it will be yours and it will be much, much better. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were seeking a heavenly homeland. These first century Hebrews were seeking a heavenly homeland and it was proven by their willingness to bear reproach and bear painful consequences for the sake of Christ and they did it joyfully. This summer I have talked to doctors whose 
um, medical licensing board is asking them to counsel patients in a way that is contrary to their beliefs. I've talked to teachers who are being pushed to teach certain things that violate their consciences. Other professions that are pressured to act in a way that dishonors Christ. How does someone who has taken on the identity of a pilgrim and seeks a heavenly homeland, how do they respond to these things? Next, let's look at the delight of a pilgrim. Verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. God has prepared these saints of old a city. He has prepared for you and me a city. He is not ashamed to be called our God. And these pilgrims desire a better country. They not only identify as a pilgrim, they not only respond to this with their actions, they feel it. Their hearts want it. To see why, let's look at this city. What is this city? What is this heavenly homeland that they are seeking and desiring? Just a few verses early in verse 10, the writer says that Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and architect was God. So, city's designer and architect was God. What else can we find out about the city in this letter? In the next chapter, chapter 12, we find the author explaining that in this new covenant that Jesus has inaugurated, we don't come to a scary mountain that cannot be touched by ordinary people like the one that Moses climbed at Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. You remember this. Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They go a little ways in to Mount Sinai, and this is where God is going to inaugurate this, I am your God, you are my people, And how does he do that? He says, Moses, you are the mediator. You come up here, and I'm going to give you the law. No one else can touch the mountain, and if you touch it, you die. And the people were scared. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, that's not the type of mountain that we come to now. No, you will come to a city of the living God, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, that will have innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new, better covenant. In Revelation 21, on that same theme, we learn that this heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, will come down and a loud voice from the throne will say, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This city, built and designed by God, filled with happy, rejoicing angels. Not a scary mountain, but a welcoming city with a perfect mediator, the God-man. It's not, Moses who's, or, uh, it's not Moses who's going to be on top of that mountain as the mediator face-to-face. You will be there with the God-man, the perfect mediator, Jesus, and you will dwell with God. That is the new home- homeland. That is the new city. Imagine hearing these words from the author of Hebrews for the first time. Do I desire this city? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did, and they were commended for it. Their hearts reflected who they believed themselves to be 
pilgrims to a heavenly home. What practical difference does this all make? It makes all the difference in the world. How you view yourself, how you act out of that identity, what you desire, what you focus on makes all the difference in the world. Yes, you are living in what many call the land flowing with milk and honey, not to mention the land of enchantment. Yet, there are difficult things here as there are difficult things in North Africa. So let's bring this home by asking, in light of this text and this exhortation, how will you respond to the hard things of life? Maybe it's not going to be public humiliation and plundering of your property, as it was for the Hebrews. But what about sickness and death? And death? These are no respecter of persons. And they tend to show, in the long run, where our identity is and show where we have set our eyes. Your child is diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. What will your enduring response be? Not your immediate response, but how you respond day 10, week 35, Year four, will it be bitterness? If your identity is only focused on here, now, my family, my health, my rights, be forewarned that apostasy is a real threat. If your identity is, on the other hand, sojourner, this life is but a shadow, My eternal reality is a city with the living God dwelling with him. Your response may be like this. I want to talk about cystic fibrosis with my five-year-old. I want him to own it. I want him to know and cherish that God has chosen him among all his friends and his family to bear this disease. He may only live to be 15 years old, 25, 35. But may he show to the world around that he has a better and abiding possession ahead of him. This, as expressed by some friends of mine recently, who by God's infinite grace are an example to me of what it is to have a pilgrim identity. What about where I live in North Africa? What is the relevance? The relevance is enormous. The majority of believers that I know in my city and in the country, and the new converts, or not new converts, as it sometimes turns out, are faced with the pressure of apostasy all the time. Imagine you're a woman living in North Africa. You believed on Christ two years ago, Months ago, you were wondering if it was really worth it to continue in your faith. You're divorced and basically considered as used goods by all the Muslim men around you. Your brother, whom you live with, and his fanatically religious wife suspect that you're not only no longer adhering to Islam, but that you are adhering to another faith, Christianity. They berate you every day for not going to the mosque, not covering your hair in a properly Islamic way, and for associating with infidel Christians. Each day, your brother takes your phone, 
checks it to make sure that you're not doing something that might make him look bad. Finally, he finds Christian materials that you have put on your phone. He flips out, demands that you put on fully Islamic dress, swear your allegiance to Islam, and pray in front of him. Or he will kill you. You think he probably won't kill you, but you do know that he will beat you and kick you and throw you and your possessions to the curb. So, you did it. You swore allegiance in front of him, dressed in Muslim garb, and prayed. Now, months later, you're interacting with my wife, who wants to counsel you from the scriptures. Our passage tonight counsels this girl. In addition to hearing the warning passages and the glorious passages on the supremacy of Christ, she needs to hear that this world is not her home. Her stay is only temporary. If she keeps her mind on Islam, on Islam, her desires on pleasing people in the here and now, and her mind on what she's left, she can go back, and she knows that she can. But if she focuses on the heavenly, better country to come, she will prove that she is a child of God. Nothing can snatch her out of his hand. And she can join the ranks of the saints in this chapter, living and dying by faith. Friends, we come to the table tonight to remember something even greater than the fact that we are pilgrims. We come to remember the one-time, all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. May our hearts be humbled by the fact that some forsake Christ after giving mere lip service to him. And may our hearts overflow with joy that God is not ashamed to be called our God. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We need heart surgery so that we can properly see who we are. That we can properly estimate this time that we have on earth. We need your help so that we can value properly Christ, our everlasting mediator, the God-man, and that city where we will always be with him. Help us to see that, to rightly value that, and may it change how we live today. Help us to grow in this identity of sojourner and grow in our desire for Christ. Grow in our desire to be with you in that heavenly city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.